Before we get into today's game scoop, let's take a moment for a shout out to our sponsor, Squarespace. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. Whether you're just starting out or managing a growing brand, Squarespace makes it easy to create an awesome website, connect with your audience, and sell anything all in one place, all on your terms. With Squarespace, you can easily sell custom merch and create a passive income stream. You design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you, saving you time and money. You can sell your products in an online store. Whether you sell physical, digital, or service products, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Use insights to grow your business, learn where your site visits and sales are coming from, and analyze which channels are most effective. Improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on top keywords or most popular products. Ready to get started? Head over to squarespace.com gamescoop for a free trial. And when it's showtime, use our special promo code gamescoop to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome back to Video Games, the audiobook. Hopefully you tuned in for part one. If you haven't yet, you'll want to listen to that first. We got a great response to the first part. So here it is, the thrilling conclusion to Video Games, the audiobook, written by Daniel Cohen and published in 1982. I'm Damon Hatfield, and I'll get things started with Chapter 6, The Games Computers Play. Everybody knows about the arcade video games. If you are reading this book, you certainly own or have played some home video games too. But there's another type of video game, one that you may not be familiar with yet, and it may have the brightest future of all. It is the computer game. Hold on, you say. A while back you told us that all video games are computer games. Well, yes, I did say that. And now I'm going to take part of it back. The arcade games and the home video games use very simple computers. These game computers are good for only one thing, playing games. The kind of computer games that we will be talking about in this chapter are played on computers that can be used for lots of other things. I suppose you could say they are played on real computers. In order to play one of these computer games, you have to have a computer. An expensive home video game system will cost a couple of hundred dollars. A good home computer will cost several thousand dollars. And then you have to know how to use the computer. That can take time. Simpler and cheaper systems are now becoming available. The chances are that you have never played a real computer game. You may never have even seen anyone play such a game. But more and more people are buying home computers. 
One day, they may be as common in the home as TV sets are today. These computers can be used for a lot of things. Homework, figuring income tax, and playing games. More and more schools are offering courses in computers to their students. Computers are part of the future. Your future. So let's take a look at some of the games that can be played on computers right now. Even if you can't play them yet, you may be able to very soon. Many home computers come with their own video display screen, their own TV set. But you can't get HBO or anything else on the screen. It is strictly for computer use. The guts of the computer are in a box, bigger than the home video game console. It has a keyboard, and the user types in information and questions. The keyboard can also be used for game playing. However, computers can be fitted out with joysticks or paddles for game playing. Many game programs are available for home computers. The programs or software come on discs or tape cassettes. Some of these programs are produced by companies that make other types of video games, like Atari. Atari also makes home computers. There are many other home computer companies. Not all software can be used with all computers. The computer owner has to be careful when buying programs. The computer has a larger memory and can simply do more things than a home video game. While there are programs for arcade-style action games, the computer doesn't really do them as well as they can be done in the arcade. But the games are still good. And there are types of games that can be played on the computer that will never be seen in the arcades. Okay, cut the theory, let's get practical and look at some of the games. We'll start with something familiar. It's called Jawbreaker. Electronic Games Magazine named it the best computer action game of 1981. The player has to maneuver a set of chomping teeth through a candy-filled maze. The teeth accumulate points by wolfing down round candies and assorted other goodies. The teeth are chased through the maze by a quartet of round-faced bullies. Actually, they are just round faces that smile when they are winning. If the bullies catch the teeth, the teeth have had it. But when the teeth chomp up a jawbreaker, one of the candies in the maze, then the bullies start frowning and turn blue. For a brief period, the teeth can gobble up the bullies. That adds extra points to the score. The bullies' ghosts fly back to the center of the maze, they reemerge as new bullies, and the chase begins again. Does all that sound a bit familiar? Sure it does. Jawbreaker is clearly patterned after the ever-popular Pac-Man, but the graphics are really much better than those of the home video version of Pac-Man. The game has more variations, too. And when it starts, you are treated to an electronic rendition of The Candyman. Another familiar type of game is County Fair. It is basically an electronic shooting gallery. The player uses a joystick to move a pistol back and forth. He fires electronic bullets at ducks, rabbits, and other targets. All familiar enough so far. But the computer has the capacity to allow for a couple of nice little extra touches. When they are shot, the duck targets fall to the bottom of the screen. Sometimes they will get up and eat the player's extra ammunition. The rabbit targets multiply before your very eyes. If you get all of the stationary targets, you then have to shoot a flying duck. And after completely clearing the screen, you have to start over again. But this time the targets move more quickly. The same type of game played on a home video game system is much more limited. The simple home video system would have no capacity to produce bullet-gobbling ducks. Sports games are not a major part of the computer game field, at least not yet. Of the sports games, the best are baseball simulations. Perhaps that is because most baseball freaks are also statistics freaks. Statistics are what computers handle best. Electronic Games Magazine picked the aptly named Computer Baseball as the best computer sports game for 1981. The game is designed for two people. Each becomes the manager of a famous World Series team. The names of the actual players on the team are flashed on the screen. The managers pick their lineups and play begins. Each baseball player's individual strengths and weaknesses are taken into account. 
The managers call all the shots, but this is not an action game. The game player does not press a button to hit the ball. Drawing on its vast store of information on the performances of the particular baseball players, the computer decides whether the player makes a hit or an out. If the player at bat is a good hitter, he is more likely to make a hit. Will a fielder handle a ball cleanly or will he boot it? That will depend on the fielder's past record with the glove. As the game wears on, the starting pitchers begin to tire. They are less effective. Sometimes they must be taken out. As in real baseball, the manager can't just stick in a reliever. The relief pitcher has to have a chance to warm up. But if he warms up too long, he will leave his good stuff in the bullpen. All the decisions a real major league manager makes during a game are made by the players of computer baseball. There is also a one-player version of the game. In that, the computer takes the place of the opposing manager. The computer manager is called Casey, naturally. The problem is the graphics. They aren't that great. You can see the ball being pitched, hit, and fielded, but it is more diagrammic than exciting. Computer baseball and most computer sports games are more intellectual tests and tests of knowledge than they are action games. Reflexes and hand-eye coordination are irrelevant to most of these games. There is an area of game playing in which the computer really excels, the fantasy adventure game. Such games barely exist in the arcades or regular home video games. Odyssey's Quest for the Rings is the notable exception. Most of these fantasy adventure games appear to have been inspired in one way or another by the game Dungeons and Dragons. The player takes the role of some fantasy character. Then the gamester has to make his or her way through a place filled with dangers or complete a certain number of tasks. There is a final goal in the adventure. It can be capturing an object, overthrowing a supervillain, or just getting out of a place alive. Along the way, the gamester can pick up aid, like a magic sword, or he can incur liabilities, a wound, for example. Like Dungeons & Dragons, most of the adventure games have a heroic fantasy background, but not all of them do. The Electronic Games' 1981 pick for outstanding computer adventure game was Empire of the Overmind. It had more of a science fiction Star Wars setting. The hero has to battle the evil Overmind, who has enslaved twin worlds. There are several different ways in which overthrowing the Overmind can be accomplished, and many more ways to fail. Wow, you think. What kind of graphics do they use for that? The very disappointing answer is none. It's what's called a text adventure. The situation in which the hero finds him or herself is described on the screen in words. The player punches in a response on the keyboard. A couple of words. The computer then responds with some more words that explain the new situation confronting the hero. It's like a short story written in collaboration with a computer. D&D players can probably relate to this kind of a game more easily than veteran arcaders. The D&D player doesn't need pictures. Dungeons & Dragons is a game of imagination. The computer can take the place of the dungeon master who makes up the rules. But for those who love zapping aliens with the press of an action button, such a game may seem dull. Not really a video game at all. Well, to each his or her own. But don't dismiss the fantasy adventure game out of hand. Graphics are coming. There are programs now available for illustrated adventures. Some of the words are replaced by figures which have limited movement. It is an illustrated text. The words are still most important. In other programs, some of the maneuvers and fights are controlled by a joystick. As the newer programs are produced, the graphics are becoming more and more elaborate and more and more important. They still have a long way to go, but they have already come a long way in a short time. In mid-1982, computer gamesters were enthusiastic over an adventure game with a different setting. It is called Castle Wolfenstein. The object is to get a captured Allied war prisoner out of a Nazi fortress called Castle Wolfenstein. The castle has 60 rooms and is prowled by SS guards, who actually speak German, or at least bark out a few commands in German. 
The screen shows the plans of the castle and the movements of the guards. The player must either outshoot the guards, hide from them, or lock the door against them, if he can find the key. Some guards carry keys or weapons, or their uniforms can be taken as a disguise. Each time the game is played, the arrangement of the castle is different, and the guards are in different places. Every time a prisoner succeeds in escaping, that is, the player wins the game, he is given a higher rank. That means next time the game is harder. It's all there. The sounds, the graphics, the action, and the adventure, and it can only get better in the future. There is another thing you can look forward to with computers. You may be able to program your own games. That is certainly something you can't do in the arcade. Hey, arcaders, this is Sam Claiborne. I'm going to be reading you Chapter 7, The Great Video Game Controversy. There are people who hate video games. They think the games are a danger to the young people of America. It's hard to believe there is anyone in the world who could hate Pac-Man, but it's true. Some cities and towns have tried to limit video games. Others have tried to ban them. Many video game cases are now in the courts. Educators and parents groups have spoken out against video games. All sorts of politicians have become involved in the controversy. To the average arcader, happily pouring his quarters into a machine, or to the home player, the whole dispute is a puzzle. What's behind it? There are a lot of things. The roots of this controversy go back a long way. A large part of the problem comes from the fact that video games first made it big in the arcades. Arcades have never had a particularly good reputation in America. Arcades were places where kids were supposed to hang around, wasting time and money. All coin-operated games are suspected of being gambling machines. One of the best known of all coin-op machines is the slot machine, the well-named one-armed bandit. The slot machine is a gambling machine, nothing more or less. It is strictly a game of chance. In most places, slot machines are illegal. Legal slot machines are allowed only in places that allow gambling. Las Vegas, Atlantic City, and the like. Kids are not allowed in gambling casinos. Legal slot machines are found in a lot of very respectable private clubs, however. People just don't like to talk about them. When the pinball machine was first introduced, it, too, was a gambling machine. It didn't have any flippers. The score you got was pure chance. If you got a high score, there was a payoff, in cash. It wasn't big-time gambling, but it was gambling. New York City's colorful mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia, went on the offensive against the pinball machine. He called it a perverter of innocent children. He went after the machines with a sledgehammer and the law. He succeeded in having the machines banned in the city. Other large cities, like Chicago and Los Angeles, also banned pinball machines. The pinball machine industry responded by changing the machine. The flippers were put in. That made the machine more of a game of skill rather than a game of pure chance. All the machines were labeled for amusement only. The arcades and other places where the games were played stopped paying off. By the 1950s, the pinball machine really had become a game for amusement only, but its past history as a gambling machine still clung to it. When the video game moved into the arcades and took over from the pinball machine, it also took over some of the pinball machine's bad reputation. The video game, however, is not a gambling device. The video game arcade is not a gambling casino, though some people seem to think it is. Video versions of blackjack and poker can be found in some casinos, but not in arcades. The video game has created some of its own special problems. No one ever accused the pinball machine of being violent. That is one of the charges leveled most frequently against video games. 
that problem did not start immediately. No one called Pong violent. Some of the early tank battles and shootout games passed unnoticed. Then there was an early game called Death Race. It attracted a lot of hostile attention. Basically, Death Race was a driving game. As in most driving games, the object was to stay on the road. In most driving games, you have to avoid obstacles. In Death Race, the point was to hit them. The obstacles were little, quote-unquote, gremlins that dashed across the road. If the player hit one, he scored points. Each time a gremlin was hit, a tombstone appeared in its place. The driver then had to avoid hitting the tombstones. The graphics were clever. The idea behind the game was not. The manufacturers of Death Race called it good, clean fun. Others said it was sick, or an invitation to reckless hit-and-run driving. The controversy over video games had begun in earnest. The image of video games as too violent was not helped by Space Invaders and all the Space Invader invitations. While it wasn't quite like Death Race, you still scored points by killing something. In Asteroids, the enemy was more abstract. It was a hunk of rock or a spaceship. But once again, something had to be shot and blown up. Thus, the picture of the arcade as a place that encouraged violence among the young was strengthened. Never mind the fact that there were also sports games and driving games that were not at all like Death Race. Those were not the games that dominated the arcades. And then came Pac-Man. Admittedly, Packy is regularly destroyed, and he does gobble up the monsters when given half a chance. But it's not a violent game. Nor are a score of Pac-Man imitators. They are maze games. Cartoon games like Crazy Climber, Donkey Kong, and Frogger may have an implied violence. Poor Climbing Mario and Donkey Kong may get bopped with a barrel. The unfortunate frog may get squashed or chomped up by a crocodile. But the graphics are so funny that it is hard for anyone to get upset. Besides, the aim of the game is to avoid violence, not to create it. The arcader picks up points when Mario jumps the barrel, or if a frog gets away from the crocodile. Most arcades are still dominated by zap games of one sort or the other. But that image is changing, and it's changing fast. It can no longer be said that all arcade video games encourage violence. As we have seen, the arcade itself had an image problem. It seemed a bit like the pool hall. In the early days of video games, the only people who wanted to spend much time around arcades were teenaged boys. Pac-Man brought in the girls. The cartoon games are bringing in younger children. Some arcades are really starting to be what arcades have always pretended to be, true family entertainment centers. While there are still many sleazy arcades, there are also many very good ones. There is no better example of the coin-op arcade's changing image than the Tomorrowland Starcade in Disneyland. No one has ever accused the Magic Kingdom of sleaziness. The Tomorrowland Starcade has all the favorite arcade games, often in giant-sized or sit-in models. If it is as successful as it now appears to be, the Starcade will set the style and the tone for arcades all over the country. The Disney movie Tron and its video game tie-in will undoubtedly encourage further cooperation between the Disney organization and the video game industry. But the problem for arcade games is not image alone. They do present some real problems. One of the most common complaints leveled against the games is that kids spend their lunch money on them. The games can cost a lot of money. Five or six dollars and quarters can disappear in no time. One California arcade owner boasted that when kids left his place, they didn't have any money left to spend on dope. Clearly anyone who is spending more money than he or she can afford on video games has got a problem. The time spent playing video games is another problem. There have been a lot of complaints that kids spend too much time on asteroids and Pac-Man. There are stories about kids skipping school to hang out at arcades, or not doing their homework because they spend too much time playing games, or coming home from arcades late at night. That too can be a real problem. 
Some people object to arcades because they tend to be noisy places, and crowds of teenagers collect in and around them. Still, another objection is to the sheer number of machines. At times, it seems as if every single store in the neighborhood has at least one, and usually several of the video quarter gulpers. There have also been scarier rumors. The games are said to be hypnotic and addictive. In truth, there is no evidence that games are any more hypnotic or addictive than any other forms of entertainment. People have been hypnotized by television. They have become addicted to playing cards. There are even times when people sit up too late reading a good book. Video games are no different. They have no special powers to turn your brain to oatmeal. The same sort of charges are regularly raised against any new development in the field of entertainment. Movies, radio, electronically amplified music, and television. People who were denounced for listening to rock music and watching too much television when they were young now turn around and denounce the young for spending too much time playing video games. It's always been that way. Somehow it seemed that things were always better when we were young, whenever that might have been. Some have reacted so violently against the games, you have to wonder if something else isn't going on. It may be unfamiliarity and discomfort with the new technology that games represent that frightens people so badly. Since most people don't understand how the games work, they tend to regard them as evil, dangerous, and far more powerful than they really are. Young people, on the other hand, accept the games and simply enjoy them. Home video games have never received the sort of criticism that has plagued the arcade games. At home, the very same games seem to be thought of as simple entertainment. Perhaps as older people become more familiar with video games, they will be less fearful of them. In the Philippines, video games have been banned entirely. The government said they were supposed to be bad for the youth. It was an odd bit of morality in a nation ruled by a dictator and noted for having some of the seemiest nightlife in the world. Various communities in America have also attempted to ban video games. Sometimes they want to close down a particular arcade. At other times, they want to get rid of the games no matter where they are. The owners of arcades and the manufacturers of games, which are, after all, extremely profitable, are usually willing to fight the bans in court. Total bans in video games have proved difficult to enforce. Cities and towns have been more successful in trying to restrict the hours of arcades or to set the limits on the age of those who can enter the arcades without their parents. Most of those in the video game business either believe that the objections to games are trivial or would simply rather not talk about the problems. Others insist that the games are not merely an enjoyable pastime, but a positive influence. They teach a certain amount of hand-eye coordination, but far more significantly, they familiarize young people with the world of computers and electronics, which will be such an important part of their lives in the future. Video games are still relatively new in our society. They've hit with an impact that practically no one expected. It will take a while before we learn to deal with them in a sensible way. In the meantime, kids should realize that they can't spend all their time and money on games, and older folks should relax. The games are not going to turn the young into a generation of zombies. Alive! Alive! Battle Video Games the Audiobook, Chapter 8. Video Games Without Video. Since electronics has invaded the game field, there's been a lot of confusion. Sometimes, non-video electronic games have been confused with the real thing. A quick look at some of the other types of electronic games should clear things up for you. And it will remind you that there are an awful lot of other good games that can be cheaper and more convenient than the standard video game. Chief source of the video-non-video confusion are the tabletop models of popular arcade games like Bally Midway's Pac-Man, Galaxian, 
Nintendo's Donkey Kong, Stern's Berserk, and Sega's Frogger. All of these games are manufactured by Coleco. Now here's where the confusion comes in. These are not home video versions of the games, though home video cartridges from most of these games are, or soon will be, available. Cartridges for some of the games, like Donkey Kong, are being offered by Coleco, which simply adds to the confusion. You can't use the Coleco tabletop games with your Atari or Intellivision, or even with your Coleco home video system. The games are self-contained, battery-operated versions of the arcade games. You don't attach them to your TV set. The tabletop games come with their own TV screens and stand about 9 inches high. The cost for these games is between $60 and $70. That's a lot more than the home video cartridges of the games, which cost $40 at most. But for someone who doesn't already have a home video system and wants to play Pac-Man or Donkey Kong, these tabletop games may be a good bet. You don't have to fool around with all those wires and plugs or hog the family TV set. The tabletop games have something else going for them. They are pretty darn good games. No, they certainly don't match the arcade games in quality or complexity. For example, the Pac-Man Maze is much smaller. It has a modest 63 dots, instead of the 240 in the coin-op version. The old gobbler doesn't move as fast, and the cherries and other prizes simply don't exist. But the graphics are still good, surprisingly good, to many who had at first considered these tabletop games mere toys. The controls are responsive, and the sound effects first-rate. The game also has variations not offered in the arcades or in home video. In Eat and Run, for example, there are no dots. The gobbler must grab a power capsule and return to his home base in order to score any points. Some even consider the tabletop Pac-Man superior to Atari's home video version. It's certainly a lot of fun for younger players who want to get into Pac-Mania, or who want to get a taste of some of the other extremely popular arcade games, without actually going to the arcade. The tabletop versions of arcade games are relatively new. Most were first introduced in 1982. Small or handheld electronic games have been around since 1977. Until about 1980, the small games were the big sales items at Christmas time. Remember all those TV ads for the Coleco and Mattel sports games? But by 1981, these games had been completely overshadowed by the suddenly exploding home video market. Still, a visit to any toy store will show you that the old-style electronic games are still being manufactured, and some of the old ones are fun to play. The big advantage of the handheld models is that they are portable. You can't take your home video with you on a trip, and you can't play it while waiting in the dentist's office. So if you happen to run across an old handheld version of Space Invaders in the back of your closet, don't throw it away. As video games have progressed since the days of Space Invaders, so have the handheld games. For one thing, they can be made smaller. Mattel, a leader in the handheld game field, has come out with a whole new line of what they call pocket-sized electronic games. In truth, the games make a pretty big bulge in the average pocket. You wouldn't want to slip them into your back pocket and sit on it but they are smaller than ever before, and they come with batteries included, a big plus. The games, which have names like Armor Battle, Formula Racer, and Long Bomb Football, are fairly simple and easy to play. In Formula Racer, for example, there are four buttons. One makes the car go right, another makes it go left. There's a button for braking and a button for accelerating. The game has a small LCD display, rather like the display on a digital watch or a pocket calculator. These games resemble the pocket calculator more than anything else, 
although pocket calculators don't make sounds like the crashing of autos. While the games present no great challenge to the veteran arcader, they are still a pleasant and inexpensive way to pass the time, and their portability makes them extra useful. Mattel is offering some larger electronic games as well. World Championship Football and World Championship Baseball give you the option of playing alone or against someone else. In the same line are games that allow you to play chess or backgammon against the computer. Mattel's been licensed by TSR Hobbies, the originator of the fantasy role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, to produce several electronic versions of Dungeons & Dragons. One is an electronic board game in which warrior-like figures are moved across a touch-sensitive electronic board in search of a treasure guarded by a dragon. In a pocket-sized version of Dungeons & Dragons, the player tries to locate a magic arrow with which to slay the dragon, all on an LCD display. Both of these games are entertaining in their own right, but D&D enthusiasts should not expect D&D or even an approximation of that inventive role-playing game. D&D cannot be translated into simple electronics, and some D&D freaks are outraged at the idea that electronics have been introduced into this game of the imagination. In truth, Odyssey's video game Quest for the Rings comes closer to true electronic D&D, and various computer fantasy adventure games come closer still. Mattel has also announced that they will be marketing a home video version of Dungeons & Dragons, but of this writing, the cartridge has not been seen. Milton Bradley, the big toy manufacturer, entered the electronic fantasy game market with an attractive-looking offering called Dark Tower. Players move pieces around a circular board. The player also has to punch in each move on a keyboard located on the Dark Tower, the unit which holds the computer, and the batteries. The Dark Tower then tells the player what has happened, if he has been attacked by a dragon or contracted the plague. Players can buy things they need, like food and warriors, by bargaining with the computer, and they can choose to fight or run. One very important thing the computer in Dark Tower does is to keep track of the progress of the game. Players are supposed to keep track of their own progress by means of a little pegboard supplied by the manufacturer. But in practice, that is rarely done, and the computer has to be consulted frequently. The record-keeping duties of the computer and electronic game-playing are sometimes underrated. It's a bore to keep score, and it leads to arguments. The computer is better at the job, and you can't argue with it. Milton Bradley is also coming out with an electronic version of the classic game Stratego, and Parker Brothers will be offering an electronic accessory for its even more classic board game, Monopoly. Every year, usually around Christmas time, the toy companies hit the stores with a hundred or so new and improved versions of electronic games. A few of the new games will go on to become classics. They will be played and enjoyed for months by those who receive them. They will be sold again in the following year and for years to come. The majority of these games, however, disappear from the shelves, never to be heard from again. Almost all of the new games are fun to play, at first. But the simple electronic games are very limited. In short, they get boring fast. The games have a single purpose. With a home video game, you can change cartridges when you get tired of a game. You can exchange or swap cartridges with a friend. If you don't like an electronic game, it'll wind up in the attic or in the back of the closet. The games cost anywhere from $30 to $80. That's expensive for something you may only use a few times. So when thinking about buying an electronic game, there are several things you must keep in mind. Number one, all video games are electronic, but not all electronic games are video games. Number two, there are many non-video versions of popular video games, but don't be confused. Number three, the sophisticated video game player may find him or herself quickly bored with most electronic games because the action is limited. Number four, 
The games are most useful for younger players, and the portable games can be a boon when traveling or waiting somewhere. Number five, if there is a game that you think you might like, check it out carefully before you buy. Once you buy it, it's too late to change your mind. Generally, the games are impossible to return unless they are broken. Number six, remember that for some popular board games, the electronic editions are just a gimmick. The games are as good or better in the much cheaper non-electronic version. Number seven, most of the electronic games are battery operated, and for those that use a lot of power, the batteries become expensive. Number eight, and finally, after all that negative stuff, I would encourage the serious game player to investigate the year's crop of new electronic games anyway. The technology in these games is improving all the time, and in the mass of soon-to-be-forgotten games may be a classic or two that would be well worth having and that would make a nice break from the video games. Speaking of gimmicks, as we were just a moment ago, modern technology has provided us with games so tiny that they can, and have, been fitted into the face of a wristwatch. People have always been doing silly things with clocks, putting cuckoos inside them or putting in dials in the form of Mickey Mouse. The game watches are just the latest in a long line of timepiece silliness and charm. There are so many different game watches around right now that a very brief introduction to the subject is all we have space for. General Consumer Electronics has a very popular watch called Game Time, which contains not one, but four different electronic games. Firing Squad, Missile Strike, Alien Assault, and Blast Away. As you can probably guess from the titles of the games, they all involve shooting or bombing something. GCE's Arcade Time Watch also features Zap games, while Sports Time gives the wearer tiny versions of football, basketball, and soccer, along with the time and date. No wonder how miniaturized electronics become, there are definite physical limits on what kinds of games can be included in a wristwatch. You can't wear a watch bigger than your wrist. This has led to a revival of the old-fashioned pocket watch, the watch which, as the name implies, is carried about in the pocket. It went out with Grandpa's Model T, but since pocket watches can be considerably larger than wristwatches, they have more room for games. There are now pocket watches on which you can play blackjack or poker, and even a watch where you can score points by rescuing victims of an earthquake. Combination timepieces, pocket calculators, and games are now being offered by Casio, a major manufacturer of pocket calculators, and several smaller firms. In one way or another, games seem to be getting into practically everything. Chapter 9, The Brains Behind the Games Video games don't just happen. People have to think them up. What kind of people? Some are artists and have a flair for design. Others were electrical engineers or studied computer science. Occasionally, they're genius whiz kids. A few are independents, which means they're trying to work on their own. The majority work for a corporation. By and large, they're on the young side because computer technology is a new field. And since California is the place to be if you work in computers, many live there. If you want to grow up to be a video game designer, there is no clear path for getting there. At the moment, the field is overwhelmingly male. But if you're a girl, don't let that discourage you. Things are changing. A woman, Donna Taylor, programmed Atari's arcade game Centipede. As more girls play the games, companies have to create games girls like, and more girls become interested in the subject. Although going to college helps, there are video game designers who never got past high school. 
Most people are good at thinking up ideas, but have to ask others to do the programming. Some programmers are masters at figuring out how an idea can work technologically once it's presented to them, but they couldn't create a concept on their own no matter how hard they tried. Creating a good game really isn't easy. The best graphics in the world will not save a game if it's boring. If all you want to do is look at a picture, you'll watch television. A video game is precisely that, a game. It must have challenge, conflict, a goal. Many arcade games have died because they're too slow or merely pretty. On the other hand, the most wonderful game will not appeal to the majority of people if it's too hard to play. And video game designers, like most people, have to worry about the practical side of what they do. Video games make money, but not all video games. No designer wants to be associated with a dud. Then there's the level of technology the designer must work with. Although it changes quickly, nobody can afford to replace an entire home video game system often. A designer may have a fantastic idea, but can it be programmed into, say, the Atari VCS you have at the present time in your home? There are limits on what a designer can do. There are changes in fashion, too. Some designers can create a complex arcade video combat game with macho appeal, but could never come up with a game that attracts a wide audience of different kinds of people. So there is more than simple talent involved in maintaining a spot among the top designers. Another problem designers face is one of recognition. Except for Activision, the major companies that produce home video cartridges will not tell you who designs their games. According to How to Master Home Video Games by Tom Hirschfield, Warren Robinette, who designed Atari's home video game adventure, was so eager for some kind of recognition that he programmed a room into the game where you can see his name. You have to go through a series of complex maneuvers that have nothing to do with winning the game, and suddenly you see, created by Warren Robinette, flash on the screen. Why do the corporations hide their designers' names? Well, in the first place, companies want you to identify the game with them not with the man or woman who thought the thing up. When you say asteroids, you think of Atari. There's another reason, too. Good designers and programmers are in demand, and companies are a little worried about them striking out on their own and becoming superstars. Designers might wind up like baseball players who've become free agents, worshipped by millions of kids and making big demands. They might be scooped up by rival companies. Whether this would really happen is hard to say. Though many want higher royalties, top designers are well-paid and manufacturing video games is risky. Everyone takes a gamble. It takes more than ideas to produce successful games. You need staff, equipment, and a promotional campaign, the kind of things big companies are set up to do. Still, I imagine there'll be a change. The designers of video games will begin to get some recognition. They definitely deserve it, and Activision has given it to them. So let's take a look at a few Activision designers. Alan Miller designed tennis, ice hockey, and checkers. Check out the instructions on these games, and you'll find he even gives you tips on playing them. But that's true in general for Activision. Like a lot of designers, he's from the West Coast. He was born in Tacoma, Washington, and grew up in Newark, California. He went to the University of California at Berkeley and has a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering. He loves sports, so it's not surprising that he designs sports games. This is something for you to think about if, like a lot of kids, you love sports, but you're crazy about computer science too. You might be able to grow up to combine both your interests. On the personal side, when Alan Miller isn't playing video games, he likes to go to the movies. When he has to get away from it all, he heads for the out islands of Hawaii. Maybe they inspire him to think up new games. David Crane has designed a lot of Activision games, such as Fishing Derby, Dragster, Laser Blast, Freeway and Grand Prix, and Pitfall. 
He was born in Napapee, Indiana in 1954, but moved to California. Having an older brother who liked electronics got him involved in electronics too. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical Engineering from DeVry Institute for Technology in Phoenix, Arizona. Apparently, anything stirs his fertile imagination, even an old joke about why the chicken crosses the road. The old joke wound up transformed into the home video game Freeway. He's a senior designer at Activision. Bob Whitehead designed skiing, boxing, chopper command, and one of my absolute favorite games, Stampede. Born in San Jose, California, he is married, has three kids, and is very active in his church. He graduated from San Jose University in computer mathematics. Like David Crane, he is a senior designer at Activision and believes that home video games make it possible for any of us, not just the technologically talented, to like computers. Steve Cartwright is the designer of Barnstorming and Mega Mania, a new and extremely clever game. He too graduated from DeVry Institute for Technology in Phoenix, Arizona. He's taught computer programming and electronics, was an all-star athlete in high school, and loves motorcycles and photography. All you photography fans, take note. Who knows? Maybe someday I'll be writing about you and the game you designed. It really could happen. I'm Brian Altano, and this is Chapter 10, Future Games. In 1972, there was Pong. Now look at the video game field. No one could have predicted the way it would grow and change over the past 10 years. There is no reason to believe that change stops here and now. Major new developments are on the drawing board. Some of them we have already discussed. In this chapter, we are going to look a little further into the future and try and explore some of the trends in video games. We will try to see what the games will be like 10 years or more from now. Practically everyone agrees that the biggest and most obvious changes are going to be in graphics. Already a game like Kickman looks a lot like an animated cartoon. Of course, the cartoon style will not necessarily triumph over all else. Take a game like Atari's Yars Revenge. Its graphics are beautiful, but highly abstract. Whether cartoon or abstract, the graphics of games both at home and in the arcades will be more striking and vivid than ever before. A glimpse of the arcades of the future can already be seen in the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland Starcade. There will be more giant screen games or cockpit style games, games that you can actually sit in and be surrounded by screens that create the feeling of being right in the middle of the action. Today, pilots are trained on a simulator. It is a cockpit device in which all the sights and sounds of actual flying can be duplicated. The pilot trainee can suddenly be faced with an emergency, like a crash landing without actually being in a danger. The feel of these training simulators is astonishingly realistic. Many in the video game field believe that future video games will be able to duplicate the kind of effects found today in the flight simulator. Not only will the player be surrounded by visual images and sounds, but the cockpit itself will shake or turn over or do whatever is required. For example, if you are playing a space battle game and your ship is hit, the flash will surround you and you will be able to actually feel the vibrations. In a large arcades, the games of the future may not be self-contained. They may be controlled by a central computer. This will enable them to produce effects much more complex than those available today. It's a glorious future. But there's a fly in the ointment. 
the cost. Some of the newer and more elaborate games already cost 50 cents in many arcades. It's not hard to foresee games that will be gulping dollars, not quarters. The real future of the video games may be at home. Companies like Atari are already coming out with improvements on their basic system. All sorts of accessories, better joysticks, keyboards, and the like are coming onto the market. But the development of the home video games as strictly a game unit has its limits. The game unit itself can become so complex and expensive, and you have to ask yourself, why not buy a computer? Why not indeed? In the future, computers may be as common in the home as television sets are today. If that's the case, most home games will be played on them. That opens up a whole new range of games that can be played. And you won't have to plug all those wires into your TV set. That is, unless you have one of those wall-sized screens that are now becoming popular. How would you like to play Pac-Man on one of those? One day, you probably will. TV will enter the video game field in another way. There are already a few cable TV stations that allow two-way communication between the station and the viewer. Some of these stations have been offering video games to subscribers on an experimental basis. The graphics for the game are broadcast from the TV studio. With the proper equipment, they can be picked up and played at home. One advantage of this system is that new games can come out very, very quickly. Just a few weeks after the war between Britain and Argentina over the Falkland Islands broke out, there was a cable TV station offering a game based on the war. It wasn't much of a game, and it was quickly withdrawn. People didn't like the idea of making a game out of a real war. But that will give you some idea of how fast a new game can be brought to the public through cable TV. The video game of the future may be very timely. Perhaps people will be able to try out games on TV first. It will be like records. First you hear a number on the radio. If you like it enough, you go out and buy the record. How about movies? The movies are frankly worried about the video game explosion. Movies were badly hurt by the development of TV. You can't go to a movie while watching TV, and you can't go to a movie while you are in the arcade or playing games at home either. The movies have tried their best. Some movie theaters have installed coin-op games in the lobby. Sometimes people seem more interested in what's going on on the screen in the lobby than what's going on on the screen in the theater. Movie tie-ins are the next step. Walt Disney Productions' Tron is the first major movie with a video game theme. In the movie, both the hero and the villain are transported into the world of the computer, and they fight it out in a video game landscape. Many of the most striking effects in the film were designed by computer. The Bally Coinopt game and the two Mattel Tron cartridges are based on the film. Filmgoers will instantly recognize the world of Tron in the game, and game players will see their own fantasies of being totally immersed in an electronic game come to life on the movie screen. By Christmas 1982, another major video game movie, Star Blasters, should be out. If these movies are successful, you can expect a flood of video game movies and games based on the movies. In fact, there are already a number of games out or planned that are based on or named after popular films. One of the first was Atari's Superman. There is also Parker Brothers' The Empire Strikes Back, and there are plans for games based on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Conan. The enormous success of video games may change the whole concept of entertainment. 
Aside from the games, much of our entertainment is passive. We sit and look at a movie or TV show. We read a book. We may find the movie, show, or book absorbing or entertaining. We react to it, but we can't affect it. We can affect the outcome of a video game. We are not just observers. We are participants. In a letter to the New York Times Magazine, James R. Benninger, an assistant professor of sociology at Princeton University, suggests that perhaps video games have given us a taste for something new. Movies or TV shows that we can affect. We don't just sit and watch. We actually participate just as we do in a video game. There are already several series of children's books in which readers can direct the plot and choose the ending. They are very much like the text adventure games played on computers. Professor Benninger points out that there are two-way cable systems which have experimented with giving viewers a choice of endings to TV dramas. He suggests that with computer technology, viewers can be offered hundreds of variations on plots. Someday, you may be able to play a game in which Dracula or Darth Vader really is your opponent. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Video Games, the audiobook by Daniel Cohen, published in 1982. Hope you enjoyed listening. Since it's got such an enthusiastic response, we'll have to consider doing more retro audiobooks in the future. I'm Damon Hatfield, host of GameScoop. Follow me on Twitter at DameZero for more scoops. You can email the show at the address gamescoop at IGN.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Uh Uh-uh. Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night.